We're so glad that some of our youth group got to go, and hopefully more will uh, decide to go next year to a wonderful event. I've got an odd request for you. I hope that you will grab either maybe a sheet of paper, maybe an attendance card, or maybe even a blank page in the back of your Bible to write something down that will begin some notes for your lesson tonight. Because what we're going to do in a few moments as we go through the lesson is present for you sort of present to you sort of a, a chain study of a particular subject. And I'll introduce that in just a moment. I'll tell you what to write to begin that in just a few moments. It is inside of us. It causes some to be squeamish when they see it. Many donate it. Others have been recipients of it. And for little kids, a colorful band-aid and mommy's kisses can somehow fix it. The it, of course, is what we've sung about so many times tonight. It is blood. And there is no way that someone can read the Bible without seeing a regular emphasis on that subject. Now I know that some people have a sort of aversion to blood. In fact, putting that picture up there, it seems like I'm not looking at the PowerPoint all night tonight. I understand that. But we're not going to be over the top tonight. But a subject of blood is one that we must consider if we're going to study the Bible. The story of blood is one that traces from the beginning of the Bible to the end. It's one of those things we might refer to as sort of a, a constant drumbeat throughout Scripture. But I want to do something with you tonight that I hope will interest you, but also maybe spur some further study. I want us to go through tonight the opening portions of the Bible and see how blood is introduced to us in Scripture. And so what you may want to write at the top of wherever you're keeping your notes tonight is this phrase, when we or when I first see the blood. And beside that, write Genesis chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. When we first see the blood, or when I first see the blood, Genesis 4, 10-11. And what we're going to do tonight is I want us to notice six of the first eight times that blood is mentioned in Scripture. And I promise by saying six of eight, I'm not cherry-picking those six. Here's why we're using those six. In one of the other cases, the word blood is used in simply a poetic way. To talk about literally the blood of grapes in, in, in that poetic phrase. That's, by the way, in Genesis 49. The other time we're not going to mention is in the first plague because we're going to connect it with something else. But the other times we see blood mentioned at the beginning of Scripture, the reason I want to walk with you in this way tonight is because the way the Bible presents this subject to us in these opening times is how it will present it to us throughout Scripture. So often, the first time or times we see something mentioned in the Bible, the Bible comes back to that concept over and over again. Just by way of example, we first see marriage in the Bible in the, in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 2. And how often then do we come back to that subject to remind ourselves that was God's plan from the very beginning. Even Jesus Himself did that, pointing back to the very beginning. That's what we're trying to do tonight in this particular subject by thinking about how the Bible speaks of this subject at the beginning because so many of the concepts are then repeated over and over again throughout Scripture. So turn, first of all, to that passage. Genesis chapter 4, verses 10-11. through 11, And you might want to write beside it, 
that God cares for human life. The awful events of Genesis chapter 4 are one of those narratives of Scripture that we typically learn and we're little and we know for the rest of our lives the story, the account of Cain and Abel. But sometimes when we know a narrative so very well, we can, we can sort of step out of the emotion of it. We just remember the facts sometimes. And that's fine to remember the facts. But we remember these were actual people and this actually happened. But one of the places we see emotion in this text isn't with one of the people necessarily. It's with God's reaction to the murder of Abel. While God is trying to teach Cain some things in this narrative, He also reveals some things about His own character. Look at what He says to Cain in Genesis 4, verse 10. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And then in verse 11, God speaks of how the ground has received the blood of Abel. Now in those words from God, of course you see teaching, you see rebuke, there's no way to miss that. But if you really listen to those words, or really read those words carefully, do you not also hear something of the heart of God coming through in the way He states that? In the imagery of Abel's blood, as it were, having a voice and crying out to God, there's an there's a emotional picture there of God Himself not just having seen what happened, but caring for what happened. There is God's vengeance to a degree in how it's worded. But there's also a clear reference to the fact that God cared for Abel. Yes, God saw it happen. But God cares for what happened. But that other picture found there of, of the earth, as it were, receiving Abel's blood adds to the emotion of the picture because at least in part it suggests that God cares for the slain man and shows Abel respect. And this is more than some circle of life. It's more than that. It is God showing respect to a fallen victim of a horrible sin. Now, I don't want to stretch any of these points too far by way of application or implication or anything else. But we can be reminded from the very beginning that the Bible from beginning to end speaks of the respect of each individual life. And that's reflected right here at the outset from God Himself or by God Himself. Yes, God was angry with Cain. There's no doubt about that. But through these words referencing blood, God makes it clear that He cared for Abel and was making it clear that we should respect every human life as God did. And so beside Genesis 4, 10-11, at the end of that verse, write Genesis 9, 4 through 6. Genesis 9, 4 through 6. And turn there to notice that the Bible tells us that life is in the blood. In Genesis chapter 9, we have recorded for us that the interaction, if you please, that God had with Noah after Noah comes off the ark. It's in that chapter, I guess most famously, that God sets the rainbow in the sky as a reminder of the covenant to never destroy the earth through water again. But there's also a reference to blood in this chapter that shows a tremendous scientific fact that gives some credence to the inspiration of the Bible. In fact, the word blood is actually found more than once in this context, but we're going to focus on one specific aspect of it. Look at Genesis 9, verses 4 through 6. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from, every, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. For whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. 
For God made man in His own image. Now parenthetically, let me say, the concept that's in verse 6, we're going to come back to at another point. But for this point, notice the connection that's made in verse 4 about life being in the blood. And by the way, there's a subtle reference to that in the concept of taking a life in verse 6. We know that we cannot live without blood. We understand in our scientific age a whole lot about the processes that occur within... Well, I say we. Other people understand a whole lot about the processes that happen within blood and how blood interacts with other parts of our bodies and how it keeps us alive and keeps us healthy. Some of you in the medical field in here could explain that stuff where I would say better than me, you could actually explain this stuff while I can't. But when Moses wrote these words in Genesis chapter 9, that just wasn't known scientifically. Most agree that people back then felt that blood was important, but for the statement to just so clearly say, life is in the blood, there was no scientific consensus to that in those ancient times. But God the Creator knew that. And God always speaks the truth. That simple statement, life is in the blood, is hundreds if not thousands of years ahead of its time. But there it is. And the Bible will say the same thing more times, including the book of Leviticus. It reiterates that life is in the blood. By the way, that simple knowledge should add just a little more dimension to our picture even of Jesus on the cross centuries later. He shed His blood clearly means He died. Now that may seem like a very simple statement, but it should truly cause us to be more grateful for what He did and add to our picture of what actually happened there. And again, I'm trying not to be over the top or grotesque tonight. When we think of Jesus dying on the cross, we cannot sanitize what happened there. He shed His lifeblood. We know that people have died throughout the years because they were bled to death intentionally. George Washington sometimes said it was that way. That's only partially true. That was part of it. There were other things that led to his death. But in the long line of history, when that happened, that wasn't that long ago. And all the while, even way back in Genesis 9, centuries, in fact, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years earlier, the Bible had said so early that life is in the blood. And so at the end of Genesis 9, write Genesis 37, Verses 22 through 34. Genesis 37, 22 through 34. And in that text, we are reminded that a son's blood speaks to his father. In Genesis 37, we come to that portion of the book of Genesis that deals most primarily with Joseph. His brothers, who are jealous of how he's treated so well at home, decide to kill him. And you might recall that Reuben talks them into not killing their brother, and instead they'll eventually sell him into slavery. But they have to come up with some way to, to trick their father Jacob or Israel. And so in Genesis 37, beginning of verse 29, they devise a plan to take that beautiful coat, the coat of many colors, or the long sleeve coat, or whatever it actually was, and dip it in the blood of a goat to show to their father. And with that as the background, look at what's written in Genesis 37, verses 31 through 34. Then they took Joseph's robe and the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt 
torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his sons, a son, excuse me, many days. Now it's in the verses prior to that where the word blood is found. They dip the, the robe in the blood. And it's enough we could say here to say, well, this death or this presumed death caused mourning, but there's a whole lot more here. Of course, the blood that Jacob was seeing was not actually the blood of his son, Joseph. He was, he was being deceived and tricked. But there's something here that speaks to humanity. But there's also a figure here of something much later in Scripture. Obviously, the humanity here is the father being crushed by seeing what he thinks is the blood of his son and just knowing in his mind that his son is not only dead, but has been killed in this horrible way. And even though he's being deceived, that doesn't change the reaction and the emotion. It doesn't make it any less legitimate. But there's also something deeper here, as there so often is when you read the life of Joseph. Because centuries later, another son's blood would be shed. And it would also speak to the father. When God saw His Son die, that blood, if I may use the terminology, broke His heart. But it also speaks to God for those who are, as we've sung tonight, washed by it. Who have their robes washed clean in the blood of the Lamb. And so at the end of Genesis 37-34, write Genesis 42, verse 22. And in Genesis 42, verse 22, we're going to see that capital punishment is or can be required. We've already seen this concept back in Genesis 9. But Genesis 42 shows us that this was an understood concept. As Joseph's brothers come to Egypt and they struggle for various reasons, if you're doing your daily Bible reading, this is where you're basically at right now, is this kind of interaction between Joseph and his brothers. But their, their guilt for what they did all those years earlier begins to get the best of them. And all these years later, Reuben, still acting like a brother, said, didn't I tell you? This is what, this is what was going to happen. He's still saying he was right. But he ties it all to the principle. And so in Genesis 42, verse 22, you have these words. And Reuben answered them, that is the brothers, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy, but you did not listen? So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. Now it's possible, and it seems to me, that Reuben is either equating slavery with death, in other words, they enslaved him and they might as well have killed him, or possibly he just assumes that there is no way that Joseph has survived all these years in slavery and now there's coming a reckoning because there's no way Joseph is still alive. Whichever is actually the case, he's stating a principle that had been stated way back in Genesis 9 when God had given the statement that if someone sheds another's blood, it was to be bloodshed in return. We might simply state that it was acceptable for a murderer to be put to death. In our modern day, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to people. But that's stated in Scripture from beginning to end. It's why when you come into the promised land, there were cities of refuge. So that if someone accidentally killed another person, they would have a place of safety. But if they intentionally killed a person, there was no place of safety. It's why the New Testament book of Romans speaks of governments not bearing the sword in vain. It's not talking about war. It's talking about capital punishment. But the Bible makes it clear, yes, that justice must prevail. We can't just put people to death for anything or without proof. But the Bible is also clear that capital punishment 
is allowable and right within certain bounds, including the shedding of blood. And once again, even that points to Jesus, who would not die because He killed anyone, obviously, but because I killed a relationship with God. And so beside Genesis 42-22, write Exodus 4, verse 9. And in Exodus chapter 4 and verse 9, what we will see is that blood can express the wrath of God. And this is the other time I'm going to say that we're going to skip one because added to this when you can include the first plague where water is turned into blood. But this in Genesis, excuse me, Exodus chapter 4 is a foreshadowing of that. As God is showing Moses that He will make Himself known to Pharaoh, He gave Moses two signs to perform that were obvious miracles. But then God says in Exodus 4 and verse 9, if they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, then you shall take some water from the Nile and it will become blood on the dry ground. Now, why would God want Moses to do something like that? Well, there are several reasons we could think of. We were preaching a sermon just on this text. We might say, well, it was just to show that God was greater than any of the deities of the Egyptians. And of course, they worshiped the Nile River. And certainly that's part of it. But also, the pouring out of blood, water turned to blood, is a picture of the wrath of God. And how often in Scripture do you see that picture repeated? Sometimes in blood itself, sometimes the idea of a cup holding that blood. Isaiah would talk about it on more than one occasion. Jesus, it seems, had an imagery in His mind when He prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane that this cup would be taken away from Him. The book of Revelation uses that imagery on more than one occasion to warn people and to show them that God would mete out punishment on those who continue to stand against Him and against His people. And the blood and the blood being poured out was meant to be a picture of the wrath of God. And here, way back in Exodus chapter 4, it may seem like a small thing at first. Moses, if they don't believe these couple of things, take some water, pour it out, it'll become blood. But then when the first plague occurs in Egypt, it becomes more than a small thing. It shows that the all-powerful God was always to be obeyed. And if not, His wrath would come and His wrath would be awful. And finally, at the end of that verse, write Exodus 12, verse 13. Because in Exodus 12, verse 13, what we are going to see is that faith plus blood equals protection. Probably other than the account of Cain and Abel, this final use of blood is the most well-known we're thinking about. Because in Exodus chapter 12, the people of God are preparing to leave Egyptian slavery after four centuries. You might recall that God tells them to prepare to eat the Passover feast. We sometimes can forget where that name comes from. The feast included the meat of the lamb. But the people were to do something not just with the meat of the lamb, they were to do something with the blood of the lamb. Look at Exodus 12, verses 12 and 13. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Obviously, pass over, that's where the name of the feast comes from. But notice the connection between blood and the promise. 
When God saw the blood on the doorpost of the house, this angel, this destroying angel, would not destroy those who were there. And from that, we can draw a very important principle. The blood was necessary, yes. But it was also necessary for the people to actually go through the process of applying that blood to the doorposts of their house. If they had killed the lamb and eaten the meat, but not applied the blood to the doorpost, they were still under the judgment of God. I guess they would have had a decent meal, but they still would have lost the firstborn in their house because that was what was going to happen to those who did not do that. But when by faith the people did what God said, the blood protected them. And in so many ways, that's a beautiful picture of the New Testament Gospel. Jesus' blood, yes, is what protects us from certain eternal death. But the protection of that blood is only promised to those who by faith do what God has said. If I may extend it, extend it even further, do what God says to appropriate that blood to their lives. The blood of Jesus is applied by faith, but a faith that acts. It acts in accordance with what God has told us to do. And of course, we know the New Testament teaches us that it's in the act of baptism that that blood is contacted. Baptism is an act. That is true. But it's an act of faith. It's an act of submission. We have faith that doing what God says will lead to our protection by or through the blood of Jesus. Now you could get on your phone or you could get online or you could look in the back of your Bible or pull a book off your shelf and say, you know, there's a whole lot more times that blood is mentioned in the Bible. Aren't you glad we're not talking about all of them tonight? We'd be here a while. But if you think about even just some of the times in the Bible that might be coming to your mind, are you not seeing how basically all of them are summed up right at the beginning? God has introduced the subject for what we know is about 62 chapters, spaced out, and now for 1,100 and something more, He will come back to these concepts over and over and over and over again. Blood is not a fun subject to read about. But if we miss the point, if we miss what the Bible has to say about it, we have missed one of the central themes of all Scripture. And it's to ask a question that we've already sung tonight. And I didn't ask Charles to lead this song, but it was so befitting. Are you washed in the blood, in the soul-cleansing blood of from beginning to end that is the imagery of scripture I don't like when I shed blood I don't like when I cut myself or something happens and I look down and there's my own blood I'll, I'll donate blood but when they're putting a needle in I gotta look the other way for a second I don't want to see that thing I don't want to see myself get hurt I just don't, I just don't get that but when Jesus went to the cross he shed it all. He gave it all. And He wouldn't stop it so that I would never have to die spiritually. And so that when I did through my sin, I could contact His blood to cover it over. That's the story of the Gospel.
found in a simple word, blood. Are you washed in the blood? If not, will you come? Always stand and sing to encourage you.